Hey everybody, this is Viktor Kovalenko from the United States and you are listening to my new podcast about the Russian war against Ukraine. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and a veteran officer of the Ukraine army. And this podcast explains how Ukrainians fight against Russia to save their sovereign state. My guest for this episode is Chuck Farrer. He is a US veteran, former US Navy SEAL, and also a bestseller author and film producer. His biography also says that Chuck served the US government as a counter-terrorism analyst for the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, and the US Special Operations Command at the DOD. Welcome to the podcast, Chuck. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Victor. Nice to talk to you. Let's start with the general question. You are a very active person on social media, in particular on Twitter, where you have more than 25,000 followers. You post your daily updates with maps about the combat situation in Ukraine. Why do you have such a strong interest in Ukraine? I started out uh, several years ago slowly covering the war in Syria. And uh, in the course of, of covering that, I met a lot of people online who were uh, in my former line of work in other NATO countries. And they, together with uh, myself, we developed a really good series of sources to update the combat situation on the ground. We had all sort of, I would almost have said retired until here recently when uh, Mr. Putin decided to take another bite out of Ukraine. And we all came together and we found that our sources, we had, uh, we although at that time we had no assets on the ground, we had the ability to get our hands on decent topographic maps. And we started covering the war again. And we did so because we all felt it was really important to do something because this aggression was so naked, so brutal, so vicious, people needed to stand up to it. The Ukrainian military successfully repels the Russian invaders for more than a hundred days. The aggressor didn't capture the capital, and it didn't change the government in Kiev, despite that the Russians planned to do it in three days. What do you think, Chuck, about the Ukrainian army right now? I will admit, I was one of the people that thought that Putin would not invade. Not because he wasn't crazy, but I thought by massing his forces on the border of Ukraine, by threatening to invade, he had done most of what he wanted to accomplish, which was attracting world attention and trying to pressurize Ukraine into making concessions. I thought he wouldn't invade because I knew that if he did invade, he would turn the entire world against him. So I thought no one in their right mind would do that, having adjusted the diplomatic temperature of the world to his liking. When he did invade, the initial assessment was Putin had been so successful with his hybrid war against Luhansk and Donetsk. He appeared with little green men. He he denied he was invading. He co-opted local sympathetic people into a puppet government and a puppet militia. A lot of people thought that that would be the means by which he would expand his territorial control in Ukraine. But what happened was Putin's invasion, after having invented this hybrid warfare that many people thought from now on in the 21st century, wars would be fought the way Vladimir Putin went waged them. When he chose to attack Ukraine, he picked a plan right out of 1983, right out of armored Soviet divisions and motor rifle battalions attacking en masse. The Ukrainians were very, very adept at seeing that they couldn't meet that threat. They couldn't meet Russian armored divisions in the field one-to-one. 
So they very quickly switched to asymmetrical warfare, which meant that where they could attack, they did. Using small units, they attacked lines of communication and supply. They attacked lone, isolated Russian units. And that was the way they were able to start to grind down the Russian invaders. And that was extremely effective. The Russian military command system is extremely brittle. In NATO and in the West, soldiers and especially special operations forces, NATO takes a great deal of pride in expecting junior officers and enlisted men to take the lead and to improvise, adapt, and overcome. The Russian army has maintained this Soviet top-down command system, and they have no initiative. And you wait for orders, and you only do what's been told to you. As the Ukrainians counterattacked, for example, around the Kiev salient, they soon discovered that these Russian troops could not react to these pin pinpoint attacks. And as we saw on the Kharkiv axis, the Russians rapidly collapsed. They fell all the way back into Belarus, defeated. And of course, on the way, there were the horrible crimes of Bucha and Hostmel and other places where disgruntled and humiliated and defeated Russian troops took it out on the civilian population. And again, that that's one of the reasons why I think the entire world is uniting around Ukraine, because they see that they are the victim here. Let's talk about this significant war episode, the siege of Mariupol city on the Azov Sea. This is the only one of two major Ukrainian cities, the other city is Kherson, that the Russians managed to capture and hold. What is your impression of the defense of Mariupol? Nothing can even be said about the valor of the Marines and the Ukrainian forces who held out in the Avstal plant. It's one of the greatest feats of military valor in history. I definitely don't want to be an armchair quarterback and say it might have been better for those men to have been withdrawn in a timely fashion. They resisted far beyond any expectation of human valor. They held out for months against what was odds of more than two or three or four hundred to one, they, they held on and they provided a moral example of sacrifice and valor. Should they have probably withdrawn? Probably. But there was a certain point at which the city was surrounded and there was really no way to get them out. It is no secret that it was a very tough decision for the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to let thousands of the Azovstal defenders to save their lives and, in fact, let's call it as it is to lay down arms and surrender to the aggressor. The ball is on the Russian side now, and Russians can do anything with that captured Ukrainian soldiers. First of all, they hate them, because for years the Russian propaganda created for the Mariupol defenders an image of Nazis, for the Azov battalion, for example. Will the Ukrainian warriors from the Azovstal be really exchanged and returned home? I don't have any faith that the Russians will will treat those men fairly. I don't believe they will. I'm afraid that they will likely perish. I'm afraid they're going to be killed out of hand. You are listening to the podcast about the Russian war against Ukraine. My name is Viktor Kovalenko, and my guest today is Chuck Farrer, a U.S. Navy veteran, best-selling author and the screenwriter. My next question, Chuck, is about the battle between the Russian and Ukrainian forces for Severodonetsk city in the eastern part of the country. This is the new hot spot in June 2022. Both sides are struggling to establish control over Severodonetsk. 
What does this situation demonstrate? Generally, if you're an offensive army and you have an objective, you want to take something, it's generally felt that you need three to one superiority. So if I'm going to attack you, I need three guys to do that. The easy rule of thumb is you think how many people would it take to throw you out a door? Well, it's basically going to take three people. That calculus changes depending on the terrain. So for example, if you are a defender and you're on a hilltop, it's harder for the enemy to throw you off a hilltop. Or if you're on the other side of a river, it's harder for the enemy to get to you and displace you. One of the most advantageous places to, to make a defensive stand is in a city because it's a three-dimensional battle space. And it appears now that the Ukrainian forces were occupying Severodonetsk and they staged a pullback. And the Russians rushed into the city only to discover that the Ukrainians had decided to fight for it. And now, after more than a week of extremely bloody fighting, it's obvious to me that the Russians have made a political decision to take the city, not a tactical decision and certainly not a strategic decision, but a political decision. And they're getting mauled. Now, I know there's casualties on both sides. I know that the city is being destroyed, but Ukrainians were very clever in doing this because every soldier or militiamen that the Russians choose to feed in to Severodonetsk, those are soldiers that aren't elsewhere on the front conducting maneuver warfare. So this city, the Ukrainians have turned it into a Russian sausage grinder. And by this point, even if the Ukrainians were to pull out tomorrow, they would have accomplished a great deal which is to hold down the Russian forces here and to start to bleed them. When people look at the map, when you, when you locate the city, you can see that behind the city, to the east, north, and south of it, there are Russian salients. So it wouldn't surprise me if eventually Severodonetsk has to be abandoned. Now it's turn to talk about the other important Ukrainian territory, the Snake Island in the Black Sea. This tiny rock became famous when its defenders on radio sent the Russian Navy cruiser Moskva in a certain direction. They all were captured by the Russians but later exchanged. What is interesting here is that what they wished for the Moskva came true. The Ukrainian forces sank this Russian flagship. This is a real war drama which is, I think, worse to film a new Hollywood movie. Don't you think? <laughs> Well, it could be, but Hollywood likes to see things go full circle. So movies sometimes say based on a true story, but the true story gets farther and farther left behind. You know, as soon as Tom Cruise wants to do it, the movie's going to come out the way he wants it. <laughs> so I, I don't think Hollywood will be interested until Ukraine takes back Snake Island. And uh, I think that they eventually will. For a rock in the middle of the Black Sea, it does have tremendous strategic importance because whoever controls that island will be able to control uh, Ukrainian shipping. It has to be taken back, and I think it will. And my advice to the Ukrainian government is, we used to say in the SEALs, never send a man where you can send a hand grenade. In the case of Snake Island, I, I don't see any reason why you'd have to land troops there until you've completely destroyed the entire island and you can build a new lighthouse. Here's my next question, Chuck. During the Cold War against the Soviet Union, the West sponsored partisan or guerrilla movements on the enemy territories. As you closely monitor events in Ukraine, 
you can see that there is more and more news about diversions against the Russian troops inside the recently occupied territory. What do you think about the potential of the Ukrainian partisan movement during this war? Well, it's a tremendous potential. Mao Zedong said that a guerrilla should move like a fish in the water. And given what's going on here in Ukraine, it will be extremely easy for the Ukrainian special services and their intelligence organizations to feed trained saboteurs into the occupied area. You have population in the occupied areas that is almost 100% sympathetic to the legitimate government of Ukraine. And having a sympathetic population is what's necessary to host a partisan network. That being said, especially in the city of Kherson, Russian officers have been assassinated. Roving patrols at night have been stabbed. They've been beaten to death with pipes. Rail lines have been sabotaged. Trains have been sabotaged. But I can tell you that if you are a soldier of an occupying power and these things keep happening, your friends get killed by snipers, a bomb goes off in your barracks, the train you were hoping uh, with your mail got blown up, those things wear on the occupiers. And that sort of resistance is much more important in modern warfare than people tend to know. And the Ukrainians have been very, very ahead of the problem to do this. The Russian army now is pretty much incapable of staging any surprise attacks. And surprise is one of the most important principles of warfare. Unity of command, mass, and surprise, they are the top three. And given NATO quality intelligence, this being fed to the Ukrainian uh, command structure, and an unprecedented network of on-the-ground human intelligence assets controlled by Ukraine, again, it's going to be very difficult for Moscow to put an offensive together. It's going to cost them men, material, and blood to occupy these areas. I'm one of many people that see Ukraine winning this in the long term. I don't think it's going to be easy. I don't think that Putin is ever going to come to his senses. I do think that the cost will eventually, it could take months, it might take years, but eventually Russia will come to the conclusion that this is no longer worth their time. Chuck, you have already begun answering my next planned question about the longevity of the war conducted by Putin's Russia against Ukraine. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Because, for example, the Minister of Defense of Ukraine, Alexei Reznikov, recently said that the war will end by the end of this year. I'm one of those people that likes to hope for the best and plan for the worst. So the worst thing that any soldier can say to himself is that I'll be home by Christmas because there hasn't been a war in the history of mankind that people came home for Christmas. I think eventually that Ukraine is going to win. I think it's going to be a long and bloody conflict. I don't think Vladimir Putin is going to come to his senses, but I do think, honestly, that eventually Russia will realize that they are losing more than they hoped to gain. I think that they will come to that assessment I truly do, but I think it's going to be some months in the future. And there's one thing I would like to say. I think here is a coming challenge for Ukraine. When Russia launched this full-scale invasion, Ukraine very deftly transitioned to asymmetrical warfare, meaning Ukraine knew that they were being invaded by Goliath, so they started to fight like David. There is going to come a time here within the coming months 
that Ukraine is going to have to transition to offensive conventional warfare, meaning it will be time for Ukraine to muster motor rifle divisions, artillery, armor, and begin to take back Donetsk, Donbass, Luhansk with offensive ground operations. The moment of that transition is going to be critical to the nation of Ukraine. Luckily, by fighting this defensive war now, and receiving long-distance, longer-range, precision NATO weapons, Ukraine must be taking this opportunity not only to fight the defensive war, but to train and consolidate their offensive capabilities so that when this moment comes, they will be able to launch an offensive and retake their own territory. Why do I think that's going to happen? I do think that's going to happen because Russia is wearing down its own capabilities. Look, the morale of Russian troops is low. I just saw a clip the other day, one of many. There's two Russian armored fighting vehicles parked behind a hill. One, one Ukrainian artillery shell lands near them, and all the hatches pop open, and every Russian soldier runs for his life. You can't win a war like that. And those Russians did that because they don't know if the next artillery shell is laser-guided and is going to come right down their top hatch. Their morale that we see in those films is typical of every Russian soldier. Ukraine's morale is high, and the Russians' morale is lowering. On this optimistic note, I would like to wrap up this episode of my podcast about the Russian war against Ukraine that explains how Ukrainians fight to save their sovereign state from the aggressor. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and the Ukraine Army veteran. Today I talked to Chuck Farrer, a US Navy veteran and best-selling author. Thank you, Chuck, for being my guest. Always great to talk to you, Viktor. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, everybody, for the updates. My handle there is Mr. Kovalenko, M.R. Kovalenko. I say goodbye, so long. <music>